Hello, friends. Kyla here. For the next week, you'll be seeing bonus episodes from the Harbinger Media Network Telethon. We kicked it off with ours and have decided to share the rest so y'all can have a sampling of the wonderful voices we share the network with. This episode, you'll hear Drew Oyajay talk about the Breach Media's Journalism for Transformation, and you'll hear Community University Television Station Manager Sophia Barsowski unpack the 50-year legacy of CUTV. Then Shannon Karenko, Amy Cunningham, and Leah Bortz-Cooperman explain how the Hoser Media is reinventing local journalism in Toronto. And David Gray Donald discusses the origins of the Toronto underground newspaper, The Grind, a new journalism collaboration between Briarpatch, Press Progress, The Hoser, and other independent progressive media spaces. If you want to watch the 12-hour telethon in full, there is a link in the description. This telethon was part of the fundraising campaign for Harbinger this year, so if you like that Harbinger is bringing together a network of progressive left podcasts in Canada, then you can support the network by going to harbingermedianetwork.com slash join. The first 50 to support at the $100 a year level will receive a new release from Canada's legacy left book publisher Between the Lines. Now enjoy this little bonus episode. Coming up next, we have Drew Ojice, publisher of The Breach, and my colleague Sofia Barsowski from CUTV, and a little bit more about them in a second. But first, back to Between the Lines. Uh, they are our, um, kind of our sponsor for this stream. And so I'm, I'm trying to highlight some of their more recent releases uh, on some of this, this live stream. Uh, stay tuned, though, because we do have other great content coming up, including The Hoser uh, after The Breach and Darts and Letters after The Hoser. So uh, another good few hours coming up. Uh, But first, another new release from Between the Lines. It's been nearly 10 years since a runaway train loaded with explosive oil derailed in the small town of Lac-Mégantic in Quebec. It claimed 47 lives and destroyed the town's centre. But the tragedy that shocked Canada remains unresolved. With no national inquiry into its causes and no charge changes to Canadian rail safety rules, the survivors have been left to the mercy of predatory developers as they rebuild their town. The perfect capitalist story of the Megantic disaster is captured in a new book from Between the Lines Press, A Train in the Night, The Tragedy of Lac Megantic by Anne-Marie Saint-Selmy and Christian Quesnel, translated from French by W. Donald Wilson. It's a vivid, full-color work of graphic nonfiction telling the story of one of the deadliest rail disasters in Canadian history, piecing together a narrative of how the powerful profit from collective tragedy. Combining the comic strip form with investigative journalism, the authors trace the path of the locomotive from the scene of the crime all the way back to the uh, producers of the black coal, the Wall Street investors, and the politicians in the pocket of a billion-dollar oil and gas industry. The full story of that night and its aftermath now live on in this new book, uh, illustrating the true human cost of unfettered capitalism. A Train in the Night comes out November 1st from Between the Lines. Find it at btlbooks.com. Between the Lines has been publishing books without bosses since 1977, and we're super happy that they're helping us give away 50 books to new members who support Harbinger at the $50 a year level. Um, but sadly, this is not a stream without bosses. That's right. I have two of my own 
bosses. Uh, on this stream, Sophia Hurst Barsowski is in Montreal and Drew Odege is also in Montreal. You guys, welcome to I Know What You Did Last Telethon. Hi, Andre. Thanks for having us. Drew, it's great to see you. Uh, Happy to be here, Andre. Thanks for having us. Well, and that's that's the voice I have to hear every morning when I punch the clock at the CUTV factory. Uh, that's right. I'm a part-time employee, the broadcast coordinator at CUTV, uh, where I basically just help do whatever they want me to help with. And Sophia's my boss. Uh, she's a great boss. Um, Drew's a great boss, too. But Sophia, CUTV is kind of a spectacular space that I'm so happy to be a part of. And so we wanted to have you come on the stream and uh, help me talk a little bit about what, what like, what is CT, C, CUTV and a little bit about its legacy and its origins. Um, so yeah, what, what can you tell us about community university television? Sophia. Um, yeah. Uh, also, I'm glad to hear that you think I'm a good boss. Um. <laughs> That's nice. Um, CUTV, so we are Concordia University's television station. Uh, We're Canada's oldest campus-run television station. So we've been around since 1969, uh, quite a long time. And we have a legacy of being involved with uh, grassroots video journalism, uh, in particular coverage of student protests. We were very active in covering the 2012 student strikes in Montreal. I think that's a notable highlight in CUTV history. And I think we're also a unique sort of space in that we're affiliated with the, the university and funded by Concordia, but then also a community space at the same time. And so, um, we have student members, but then also community members. So we're, we're open to, to Montreal as well and kind of serve, I guess, both of those communities at the same time. And yeah, I, our main focus is sort of, as I said, promoting grassroots journalism. We have a grassroots coverage before, fund. Before, before we get to the grassroots fund, I, I just want to mm-hmm. highlight to the... It's so weird and so satisfying to be like in the office when either students or community members come in to borrow equipment. And so, yeah, you have people who are like clearly undergrads and they're, they're borrowing like a projector for the K-pop club and watching K-dramas, or they're like doing some YouTube video, like from their home, or they're doing something really ambitious that like requires like the lights and like all the stuff. Um, Or there's like community members who just are really into using the medium of video to tell stories about uh, the sort of topics that you don't see in mainstream media, right? So Mm -hmm. to have that space just be like there for people is so awesome. Uh, Even especially so because for a couple of years, the space was closed um, because of the urgency of the pandemic. Not that the urgency has changed, but access has changed. And so the doors are open again and people are coming in to to participate and to use the equipment. Um, How much does it cost every year for students? It's free, but for community members, what's, what's the price to have access to this like million dollars worth of equipment and studio? Uh, for community members, it's $20 annually and then $10 to renew each year. So yeah, very heavily subsidized. And then there is um, the only equipment that we do charge for on top of the, the annual fee is the video cameras, which is $5 a day. So right. still very reasonable. It's I wild. Think. 
yeah, yeah. it's like wild it's like I mean it's like a library but there's just this huge uh, bunch of equipment and a mm-hmm. massive shout out to your predecessor um the previous station manager was um Emma Watson who is actually the co-host of the Gender Troubles podcast at Harbinger and she basically rebooted the whole library system so every time we like dig through all these things to find stuff and they're like perfectly cataloged and then we like go onto the computer and help the students or the community member take them out it's just so cool and I always really appreciate the unbelievably huge burden that she carried to make that functional again so thank you very much to Emma for that um and yeah the grassroots fund is something really exciting and it's so exactly what you think this kind of space would be doing right which is basically providing small uh small money to to help people um cover something special so yeah tell us a little bit more about the grassroots fund and mm-hmm. maybe give us some highlights about what uh what we've seen there in 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 2022 mm-hmm. yeah for sure um so the grassroots coverage fund is a fund that exists um again, for for students and then also community members. And uh, we can provide up to $1,500 per project, um, depending on the scale. And then we also, so it's kind of divided into sort of two categories, if you will. So there's a rapid response coverage portion, and that's um, for more time-sensitive, one-time events like demonstrations or protests, if someone wants to to do coverage on something like that. Uh, we can allocate up to $200. And then we have the more sort of like large scale, I guess, more like long-term video projects, which we can allocate up to $1,500 for. Um, And I think it it is really exciting um, to be able to offer funding for, you know, these projects that often don't get funding. And it is definitely tricky to, with video journalism, I think, be, you know, adequately compensated. And so this is just like a small kind of way to, I guess, um, alleviate that issue. But um, there have been some some really great um, videos that have come out of that. Uh, uh, recently, um, a freelance uh, journalist who often does work for us, Sarah Jesmer, um, she did uh, coverage on the, there was a protest on October 7th, um, Stella, which is an organization in Montreal um, that does organizing around sex worker rights and issues. They're like a by and for sex worker organization. Uh, They were protesting Bill C-36. And so, yeah, she she covered that. It was a great video. She also covered um, a demonstration about the deportation of Mamadou Konate as well. So really great work coming out of her. And it's it's exciting that we can support her in her career as a journalist as well. So those are some rapid response um, examples. We also um, uh, helped fund a sort of more like experimental um, queer video art project uh, that was created by a friend of mine, Alex Apostolidis, called I Want My LGBTB. Um, So that was like a a slightly different sort of vein in that it it was like a more, again, creative, artistic, not necessarily journalist, documentarian sort of work per se. But but that was another project that we helped fund. And so there's, you know, some room in terms of like the, the different sorts of projects that we can we can be a part of. So those are just a few highlights. 
And yeah, hearing about that, it's so exciting and it's it, it's so awesome that it gets to reflect like, um, yeah, the, the stories that people want to be covering and, and, and doing stuff about. So I love that. Um, I don't love, though, I, I was just corrected by by one of my bosses in the in-house chat. Um, I, I messed up. I totally called Emma Austin. Emma Watson. And one of the reasons for that, Drew corrected me. Thank you, Drew. One of the reasons for that is that um, CUTD and The Breach are kind of like sister orgs. And uh, at The Breach, there was an Emma Watson that we worked with. I also produced the podcast for The Breach. So there was two Emmas. There was also two Kates. And it got super confusing. Um, There is only one Sophia so far, but uh, they're probably prioritizing hiring a new Sophia at the breach to make things uh, confusing. But one thing that's not confusing is the amazing content that has been coming out of CUTV over the last year. That's right. I'm talking about Local 514. Sophia, this is CUTV's flagship show hosted by Savannah Craig. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what does this show do and and what were its origins? Uh, maybe Drew would, would speak to that as well. But um, Sophia, what is Local 514? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing up Local 514 because I think that they do uh, fantastic work. So they're our news show and they're, you know, an alternative sort of news program, you know, doing coverage on things that you wouldn't necessarily see being adequately tackled in, you know, mainstream corporate news. Uh, so they release uh, bi-weekly episodes, so every two weeks. And uh, their most recent episode, which you can find on our website, um, cutvmontreal.org, please check it out. Um, they uh, talked about systemic racism in the Quebec healthcare system, um, which I mean, there's, I think a lot of really important things to be tackled in that area, um, obviously in light of um, Joyce Eshaquan's death, um, and just the larger problems within the healthcare system, especially um, under the CAC uh, government. So that was their most recent episode. They also uh, previously talked about Quebec Solidaire, um, especially with the election that happened recently. So um, their origins, I think Drew could maybe speak to that a bit better, because I'm a, a more recent addition to this UTV team. Drew, I don't know if you want to. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, I'll ask you to weigh in. And yeah, uh, just to be fair, Sophia has hit the ground running as the new manager about two months ago. And so there's been a lot and it's you've been incredible at, at the job. But yeah, 514 has been going for about a year and a half. And some other stories that Savannah and her team have covered are inflation and rising grocery prices the failure of Montreal to hit its carbon targets, um, uh, organizing at Montreal's Amazon uh, distribution center. And <clears throat> Local 514 is a YouTube show, so it's primarily meant to be a visual medium, but then it's also released as a podcast uh, at the Harbinger Network. So Drew, can you tell us a little bit about the origins? Like when, when it came time to sort of like create a flagship show for CUTV, what what was the intent with with uh, creating this local 514? Well, it came up because um, there was some, uh, there's some like long organizing that's been happening in the community TV sector, uh, which is, which is a, you know, very, very much a struggling sector, I would say, like the funding for community TV actually came from uh, cable companies who originally gave like 10% of their revenues as sort of the condition of having access to, you know, all the sort of ground to lay all that cable and everything. Um, you know, they were sort of forced to to do some public public service. So basically providing the local uh, public access TV stations. And that, there were like 300 of them across the, the country. Um, 
anyway, long story short, that that they've cut, whittled that down to almost nothing. Uh, and so there's this organization that for the last like 10 years and a bit has been trying to sort of claw back bits of that. Um, it's called Cactus. So that's an organization of basically bringing together the remaining uh, community TV stations. I think there's a there's a, a few dozen uh, across Canada. Um, and 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 the sort of they've been trying to get the cable companies to cough up the dough um, for a long time. But the sort of consolation prize <laughs> for for not being able to do that yet, although um, we did just uh, have a sort of a major uh victory um in in the bill c11 i think um, yeah and just sorry and just to like give a little bit more background then i'll uh, go back to you so rebuild community media was an initiative that cutv was part of spearheading basically to like you're saying uh rock the boat and and try to like make government remember that it used to like actually control the telecoms. So some money went back to community television. And I think because yep. CTV is such a legacy institution, it was really well poised to like be, be spearheading that. So yeah, yep. sorry, please continue. Yeah. So that's a campaign that we were part of. That's all sort of background to say that the consolation prize for not getting that yet um, uh, has been uh, that the government gave a bunch of money um, to the community TV sector Um to do local journalism this is part of a broader local journalism initiative that that's that's sort of funding journalists to do local coverage across the country mm. um and this is sort of the the stopgap measure basically because because in journalism has been completely like decimated across the country there's um you know hundreds of hundreds of local newspapers and outlets have closed uh, over the last little while. And this, this is sort of a, due to a combination of sort of corporate consolidation within the sector where they just keep, they just keep making, making it more efficient <laughs> in the sense that they make bigger and bigger papers covering bigger and bigger areas with less and less journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also Facebook and Facebook and Google have just cut the heart out of the advertising that used to be the bread and butter mm-hmm. of local media. Um, Anyway, all that to say that we get we get some of this funding, um, and so we were like, okay, what what can we do uh, in Montreal that would that would add something to the conversation? And so the mandate for local five one four is really to cover cover things from you know perspectives that aren't represented, uh, you know, either by the CBC or by the um, by the. Uh, corporate media of various kinds, the dwindling corporate media, like, you know, I, we think of the cuts as mainly affecting uh, rural communities, but in Montreal, there've been dozens of journalists fired or laid off or whatever you want to call it as a result of these sort of consolidations and cutbacks. Um, and some of them by like super highly profitable corporations like Bell and so on. Anyway, that's, mm-hmm. I, and again, I'm <laughs> getting off deck, but, but that's the, that's the landscape in which local 514 is trying to, um, to provide some sort of regular grassroots local news, talking to communities about issues that affect them, um, you know, and tackling things from a fr- from a sort of uh, you know, um, I would say progressive sort of uh, materialist perspective, I guess, um, uh, in terms of like looking at looking at those issues. Uh, you know, from like understanding the sort of economic interests that are involved, um, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, driving, whether what's what's driving the housing price crisis and like preventing us from building massive amounts of um, 
you know, low cost housing or whether it's, uh, whether it's looking at, um, the sort of, um, wave of, you know, racist, uh, activity that's been sort of <laughs> by like increasingly infiltrating its way into Quebec's political culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just looking at that, those things are happening, but like, why, uh, where, where is it coming from? What are the economic interests that benefit from that? So like, mm-hmm. that's really the idea behind local 514 and, and Savannah well, uh, and mm-hmm. oh, the journalists who, who run it have been doing a great job, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the, how you can frame it as sort of an answer <clears throat> to uh, how media has been unraveling in a lot of ways. And yeah, Savannah is a graduate of Concordia's journalism program. So she really like understands the community and she's able to speak to things in a wonderful way. Um, and we have another show at CUTV that sort of CUTV incubates and coaches and helps to grow, which is a return of Concordia's French language magazine, which CUTV relaunched as a uh, video magazine, basically, hosted by uh, Clément Lechat, who is also a journalism student at Concordia. And so, Sophia, um, Logan is not dissimilar to what's done at Local 514, but maybe tell us a little bit about um, what does Logan do? And, and by the way, this had been a French, I think, like physical magazine that was released monthly for many, many years. It went away for a while, maybe just because there was no one to help carry it. But institutionally, it's been part of Concordia's like, um, like how it tries to be a voice for Francophone students on the campus. And so Clément has really done a fantastic job bringing up, bringing it again back. Isn't that right, Sophia? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think Clément does a great job. And I, I think with Lorgan, I, I can't really speak to the history of it, really, because I, I don't know a lot about its origins. But I, I would assume, you know, within the university, there's a lot of turnover and it does sometimes happen, especially if a lot of people, you know, graduate or leave, then something can just sort of go dormant. And from my understanding, I believe that's what happened with Logan. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's there's some similarities in terms of, I think, the the sorts of coverage that they do. Um, you know, Claymont recently uh, had an episode talking about housing co-ops and, um, you know, like housing rights and issues within Montreal, which is a topic that, you know, Local 514 has also done coverage on. But then I, I think definitely the importance of, I guess, having there be French representation and also within the university, within, I guess, an English school, there's, I think it's, it is important to still, you know, there has been like a a political history there with like being a Francophone person, like in an English institution in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And so I think Lurgan is doing important work in terms of, yeah, increasing representation for Francophone students at Concordia. And yeah, having there be programming in French, essentially. I never, I never thought of it that way, but it's like, because we, Montreal is a university city. We have four major universities and like 250, 300,000 students in the city. It's like enormous. Two of the universities are basically French. Two of them are basically English. So sometimes in terms of like how people in their, if they're in a French culture or an Anglophone culture, there can be people looking down at like participating in, in linguistically in one school or the other. So I guess it's kind of nice to like, yeah, normalize, fr- like Francophones are going to go to English schools sometimes. Anglos are going to go to French schools sometimes. Uh, it's really nice to not otherize um, linguistically the people. So th- obviously that's not like as present as it has been in terms of Quebec society and culture these days. 
but in other ways, it, it's as present as it's ever been, as the CAC uh, loves to otherize linguistically and racially and ethnically and religiously many people all the time. But on a happier note, Sophia, and, and then we're going to pivot talking about the breach, uh, on a happier note, workshops at CUTV. We mentioned earlier in the stream, uh, we had Hillary Agro on, and she talked a little bit about her recent workshop for CUTV. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the past workshops that CUTVs put out as free educational spaces for people to attend and learn. And, and what do we have coming up uh, later this year and, and even in, into next year? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Hillary Agro. I was going to bring her up because she's a part of the Harbinger Media Network. But yeah, do you want to we... know? Do you want to know? Sorry, do you want to know what her Halloween costume was today? Oh, what? What was she? Went, she went and thrifted zebra like um, fabric, and then like did up this whole zebra thing with like arm leggings, and she had like um, zebra bunny ears or something, and she had like zebra make make made up her eyes. She had been out partying last night, and I'm not sure she had slept that much uh, before coming on the stream, but she was awesome. She looked awesome. It was a dope uh, costume. So anyways. That seems pretty in line with her persona. She's, you know, she identifies as a rave mom. So that that, right. that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> so her, um. so her, her talk was great. And, and who else have we had? Yeah, um, I mean, the talk with Hillary, um, I'm sure she spoke about it already, but we talked about, um, yeah, the misrepresentation of drug use in mainstream media. We had a really great conversation in spite of um, some Zoom bombing, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but but it was it was a great talk. And yeah, she she did an excellent job. She's, you know, very used to speaking about these subjects and very vocal on social media and TikTok and Twitter, obviously. So she has a lot of experience with that. Um, so yeah, we do sort of more politically centered events like like that talk. And then we have this coming Wednesday, um, a talk that we'll be doing featuring Odette Auger from Indigenous, mm -hmm. um, an indigenous news outlet located in the Okanagan Valley in mm -hmm. British Columbia. We'll be having a talk on decolonizing the news and sort of looking at, I, I guess, really like the work that Indigenous is doing and you know, what does it even really mean to decolonize the news, so, so to speak, like unpacking that word and, and what it actually means in a more practical journalistic sense. Um, and then also looking at the ways in which mainstream media has often upheld colonial values and also kind of critiquing, you know, the notion of objectivity in journalism and looking at how historically it has been used as a way to, to maintain a dominant perspective. Um, that's something that Indigenous, you know, feels very strongly about. And they have, um, if you check out their websites, they have a lot of interesting things to say about, you know, their sort of like journalistic approach in a decolonial context. Mm -hmm. um, and so that will be Wednesday, 4 p.m. EST on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, and we have an Eventbrite set up. Again, you can find information about that on our website or on our uh, Instagram account, CUTV Montreal. Well, and, and um, in fact, it's it's not yet up at the website. So definitely go to Instagram uh, to find the Eventbrite details because um, mm -hmm. people should definitely want to check out this talk coming up this coming Wednesday. And that's free to attend. It doesn't cost any money. It is free. Yes, what? that is correct. Okay. Um, I'm actually just going to post the link <laughs> to the Eventbrite in the, in the chat. So um Everyone can see it there, but yeah, we have, we have that event coming up, but we also have 
more sort of um, just like practical tutorials for, you know, mainly geared towards students and uh, CUTV members that are very hands-on, just like how to, we, we recently had a, how to use a video camera for like a beginner workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also will be having a video editing workshop with Ode from Local 514. And because you were talking earlier about, yeah, like we we have the equipment rentals and we're very much you know, a community space where we're trying to remove barriers for people being able to access this equipment and use it. And, you know, providing these workshops and tutorials is very much a key part of that. It's Mm. providing these equipment rentals and then giving people the skills to use this equipment, especially when that knowledge is sometimes sort of gatekept from people. And it can be really confusing to navigate how to make your own video footage if you're you know new to this world so mm-hmm. that is I think like a really key part of like what we do at a CUTV. Absolutely and so just for people you, you'll definitely want to subscribe to Local 514 at YouTube uh, at, at, on social media TikTok Instagram etc. Same with CUTV follow it everywhere you would look for social media and um and and if you're in Montreal definitely get involved we love having people come by the space and become members uh, if you're a CUT uh, Concordia student definitely come by and check out um the equipment come come borrow it come use it because that's why it's there and we love when people are using it it's so awesome so Sophia I really appreciate you being able to kind of like explore everything about the station because um it's awesome. It's been around for 55 years. Um, so yeah, I love it. Thank you very much. Let's then pivot to the other half of the segment. And Drew, um, it's interesting that the breach uh, is, is also a year old. This has really been a year where a lot of new media spaces have sort of like turned the clock. Harbinger just turned two. Pivot just turned one. Um, so really quickly, can you just sort of tell us the origins of the breach and what the last year has been? Because uh, it was so exciting when it launched, it launched so big, and the content has been so consistently excellent over the last year. Um, so I've been amazed. And I'm not just saying that because you're my boss. Um, so what is what is the origins then of the breach? Yeah, I mean the breach, um the breach comes out of um I mean, a, a whole series of conversations um, that a bunch of us have been having for, for you know, years or decades, depending on when you want to start counting. Um, certainly a bunch of the people involved were involved in the media co-op and the Dominion back that started in like in 2003 and ran until, uh, well, the media co-op's still going, um, but I, I left in 2015. Um, but yeah, so so there's a whole history of, of, media projects and grassroots sort of journalism that 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 goes way back um but the real idea behind the breach right now is journalism for transformation um you know that's our tagline that's that's you know we're we're interested in covering movements um that can transform society or have the potential uh to transform society and the economy um and obviously that's um you know, it's a difficult thing to to do at this moment in time. It requires sort of optimism in the face of some pretty pessimistic uh, conditions. Um, but that's 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 really the the fundamental idea. And then, furthermore, like you know, it's a sort of a belief in our ability to 
to find ways to create journalism and coverage about those things that punches through. So it gets out of the sort of activist bubble, out of the sort of progressive media bubble and into the sort of mainstream. Um, and we've seen that. I, th I think we've been successful in a few occasions. I don't think we're nearly satisfied with, with, <laughs> with how much we've been able to do that, but, but things like the, uh, the, uh, blood plasma, um, this is a privatization story, um, you know, managed to like really s sort of set the news agenda, you know, outside of, um, uh, you know, in the corporate press, basically, like the yeah. Global Mail covered it a week and a bit after we did and like didn't credit us. And then they got, a right. they got, they got dissed for it. Um, and, and, it, you know, it's just that kind of thing where it's like, okay, something can go, um, can really reach like tens of thousands of people and, 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 and sort of be on in the consciousness of hundreds of thousands of people. And, and mm. generally what we find is that movements have to create those moments. Like they don't just sort of happen by themselves, but journalism can in a more limited way, sort of create those moments as well. If you do it in just the right way or catch just the right nerve or, you know, moment of public consciousness. And well, um, and, and one, yeah. and one thing with the breach too, is just that like, um, it it looks so good it reads so well because you guys are extremely good editors and you work really closely with your journalists and so it, it comes off just so fully uh and completely right like it's 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 a it's beautiful to look at and it's wonderful to read yeah and i think that sort of professionalism is is really exceptional um for better so or worse we, we put a lot of energy into every article like you know at least two editors look at every article you know we have we have our we have an art director who 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 dials up amazing sort of custom artwork for each article like that we definitely uh you know are trying to go go beyond the the sort of usual um you know progressive media copy paste somebody's uh submission of i've you know i'm not knocking it i've done a lot of that but, okay. but but the result is that you have a lot less coverage but hopefully of a quality that can find a way to sort of again punch punch through that bubble and mm -hmm. and reach a, a, a mainstream audience and set set the set the agenda um you know in the in the larger political and media sphere uh, and and it's it's completely grassroots funded. It doesn't receive any sort of like big dark money. Um, and so uh, people should, if they haven't already, check it out at breachmedia.ca. Some of the stories that you guys have been. Oh, I, well, no, I want to say too. Since I'm kind of behind the scenes, since I produced the podcast for the breach, I've been in the meetings with this like sprawling cast of contributors who do all kinds of different roles from coast to coast, and just like such high quality people so it's been i didn't know that that's what it would be like when i started working with you guys so it's been really really amazing to see and yeah it's just so cool so yeah, what are some it, the, our team can be described as sprawling certainly there are a lot of different people involved in in all the different aspects yeah um, you know people everywhere from yeah uh halifax to vancouver to spain to uh you know various other points in between and north yeah yeah, it's it's incredible. And so when these stories come out, um, I read them and I sort of know like how the recipe is made. Uh, but the stories themselves are so great that like that doesn't. Anyways, it's 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 wonderful. So we wanted to talk about a few of the stories that the breach has been that the breach has released recently. Um, one I haven't read yet, which is the seaweed farming piece. Can you? Um, yeah, yeah, I threw that in there because I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. Um, okay, yeah, go ahead. And um, 
but but you know i think it comes off as a pretty nerdy story like it's it's basically about this seaweed farming uh that's happening on on the sort of coast of bc um and that's you know that's part of sort of a big like worldwide explosion in sort of seaweed farming um which you know um has all kinds of different facets to it um but the the angle that was that was really i thought really interesting i mean so uh, so so i guess the background is that there's just been non-stop wall-to-wall positive coverage of this it's like oh it's a ecologically oriented you know climate friendly economic development opportunity for first nations da, 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 da. like it has all these like really positive like really positive coverage uh on across the board like in you know global news outlets canadian news outlets local news outlets in bc like it's 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 really pretty like unambiguously this is like really positive uh hopeful thing um and and you know definitely one aspect of the story that was written by Holly Dressel, a, you know, long time, a collaborator uh, of David Suzuki's, but also a long, long time journalist and filmmaker here uh, near Montreal. Um, I think part, part of it was sort of like, okay, well, <laughs> let's pour a little bit of cold water, not no, no pun intended on those, um, on those claims, but like, um, but it's, but I think that there's a bigger piece uh, that it really gets at um, that I think is, you know, could be lost in the sort of, you know, if you don't read past the first paragraph or something, which is that there's a, there's this big, there's this growing sort of bubble of climate capital, um, which is like all this money from corporations being like, oh, we're emitting, but we don't want to stop. Uh, and so we need to like make that look better <laughs> and we're going to pay somebody to like do that for us. Um, and so seaweed of course is, is one of the ways that, that that's done. Um, and there's, and then, and it's sort of in the context of this like bigger, like sev- there've been several attempts to use the ocean to generate carbon credits in really like dubious ways. Um, and so, and that have actually been slapped down um, by, by sort of international activism um, whether it's like Sea Shepherd or EDC Group, um, full disclosure, I used to work there. Uh, but um, but yeah, so so there's this bigger sort of pressure, economic pressure globally to commodify the ocean and turn it into this like carbon sequestration machine, right? Um, and seaweed is the one area where they've been able to sort of like start to get that motion that motor going and once capital starts investing in something and creating like mobilizing a hype machine and then creating a lot of jobs around it and then you get politicians who are invested in it, you get media who are invested in it and it, it, it creates this like snowball effect right where things really get their own momentum you see silicon valley use this sort of similar technique where it's just like flash floods of capital into a sector with all these big promises and it doesn't really matter whether they're true or not because there's just so much hype. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're worried about this happening with seaweed, but also just like keeping an eye on this bigger um, sort of attempt to commodify the ocean and how this is sort of the thin edge of the wedge. It's like, of course, it's going to be like the most, and you know, it's not to knock the seaweed industry. Like obviously there are ways to cultivate seaweed, um, well, maybe not obviously. Some of the people in the article don't think that there are at all, but that there are there are ways to harvest seaweed and 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 do that sustainably and have a business with that. Um, but 
uh, <laughs> just a second. Um, but uh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's going to try to scale up by orders of magnitude um, and a as a way to sort of like sequester carbon, like whether it's like growing seaweed and then bur like burying it at the bottom of the ocean or whatever it is. Um, that's 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 going to like have massively that if it's done will have massively negative ecological impacts and probably won't actually have the climate uh thing like the climate impacts that that it's claiming to have um and so, so it's just this like just totally negative capitalistic enterprise so so <clears throat> i love how the breach can go so deep on a specific topic and it's clear how passionate you are about it and it reminds me too that the breach is really able to um straddle all kinds of different spaces because like deep ecological stuff right but then also the story um that martin lukacs wrote uh kind of reviewing the um disqualification of anjali apadurai um, which was such a huge bummer last week she was running for the leadership of the bc ndp and they basically kneecapped her um and it was just like so ugly to see but the piece of the breach was exceptional um tell us a little bit about that yeah so and anjali apadurai had a sort of an accidental bernie sanders moment in bc like she you know, they put together this totally last minute campaign because nobody else was the, you know, David Eby, who's, you know, so like vaguely more progressive than than the pre, than his predecessors was running unopposed with like the support of the vast majority of the caucus for the BC NDP. So basically this person who wins this leadership race is going to become premier of BC and, and you know, you know, spoiler alert, that's what EB is becoming in a few days. But, um, but Anjali, put together this campaign to be like, okay, we're going to raise climate. We're going to like have the movements represented on the debate stage. Like we have to use this opportunity, mm -hmm. but then <clears throat> almost by accident, they had like a month to organize. It was just like thrown together. Like, I think a lot of, you know, the, the campaign team was like a real mixed bag in terms of like experience levels and stuff. It was not like a, it was not like a carefully planned out fundraised organized thing. It was just like, let's do this. Um, and it, it as it turns out they were able to as all indications that ndp has been completely mum about this but the all indications suggest that they were able to to sign up way more members like not just way more members than eb but way more members than the existing membership of the ndp right <laughs> which of the bc ndp which is which is wild um yeah. And 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 really uh, unexpected, I think, by basically everybody involved. Like nobody expected her to win, and, and so she was on the on the on the on the she was on the verge of of winning because she had signed up all these things. But then the BCNDP, like, um, which is actually you know surrounded by and and has a revolving door with the fossil fuel lobby. Mm -hmm. um, you know, saw this like 32 year old climate activist, like poised to become the premier. And it was just, I think it was just for them. It was just like, this cannot happen. Like it just cannot happen. Uh, there's just, and, and just to like, say, we don't Angeli, care what, what norms and just we say, have Angeli, to Angeli, Sorry, Angeli as well. 
Right. But just to just say, Anjali as well um, ran for the federal NDP in the last federal election. She came 500, who was a house flipping yep. loser. Yep. And so she's like part of the party. She's not some outsider. She's yeah, not yeah, no, party. no. I mean that that was the that was the story they were spinning. But they they had to, they had to do something, right? They had to yeah. spin some story. But that's actually if you look at all if you look at the lobbying records of all the people who were spinning these stories on and getting invited on as like NDP insiders and like people close to the party on all these like you know talk shows and in newspaper articles and stuff, they're actually all like fossil fuel lobbyists, like a bunch of them, like Jeff Ferrier. Um, you know, Michael Gardner, um, uh, you know, Raj Sahota, um, even the person who's in charge of the leadership race works for Hill and Knowlton, which is like a fossil fuel lobbying. I mean, it's a, it's a lobbying, you know, it's a lobbying and strategy firm that does a bunch of things. But one of the things that it definitely does is works with, um, with fossil fuel interests, like both in BC itself, but also globally, like they work for like Saudi Aramco and stuff. Mm. So it's wild. Um, it's the actual person who disqualified Anjali was, you know, part of that sort of coterie of, mm. of, um, of, of fossil fuel, you know, aligned people. And so in Martin's piece, I mean, he basically did some very good journalism where he dug up uh, the, the like, he had the connections, he had the stories, did the legwork, and he pulled together, like, a basic, like, autopsy of yeah. what had occurred. Yeah, was, so, was, so Martin was able to un- unearth, like, a bunch of things that were not not previously reported so really expanding the picture of like the extent of like um like things that that weren't covered before were like the rule change like they actually changed the rules retroactively so so the 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 rule like there's this long report that was leaked that the um elizabeth call um you know the this fossil fuel lobbyist who's in charge of leadership race put out that was you know indicting angeli for like collaborating the, colla- the 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 main charge of collaboration was actually a rule change that happened after um the event that she was describing in the report you know this like you know zoom call in the summer um uh so that was that was like a wild detail and then and then there was there was a piece about public outreach which is like this major um sort of uh fundraising and outreach sort of uh consultancy um in in bc that's well that's bc based but that's all over canada and they were actually contracted to do what what one um former ndp official called like a basically a voter suppression campaign um so uh so they called like seven thousand people and and basically uh you know asked them questions in a way that was intended um probably uh to intimidate them and just keep them from voting obviously they didn't have to go that far they that ended up being sort of useless because they they just pulled the plug on the whole leadership race uh to keep her from winning but anyway well and and so i want to we only have six minutes left in this segment so i I do want to talk about one more piece of the breach but i want to comment i want to comment that um i think what struck me about martin's piece is that it was documenting something really important that had happened and that was like really gross politically um and there might never be a book written about it so having this sort of documentation i think is a really incredible kind of journalism that you don't find you know in, in a lot of 
spaces. So uh, people can read that at breachmedia.ca. But the one more piece I wanted to touch on before we wrap is um, the piece that was published a couple of days ago by Michael Rancic, Overcoming Isolation, Sex Workers Are Organizing for Life-Saving Reforms. So Drew, maybe you can really quickly give us the yeah. lowdown on that. And then I'd love it if Sophia could connect that a little bit with the talk that's coming up at CUTV. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. yeah, we actually used um, some of CUTV's coverage, um, like uh, CUTV had some video coverage of some of these demonstrations that have been happening. So, but, but the long and the short of it is that this piece is documenting this and this this has come back to the sort of transformative journalism because there's this you know despite it being basically illegal technically illegal for sex workers to organize or to support sex workers in, or, in organizing there's you know there's a coalition of groups from across the country um that have been pushing for um for a form of of the sort of very sort of um Anyway, like basically these laws that are from the Harper era that they say are extremely dangerous um, or that make their lives dangerous, make their work very hazardous. And um, and and so, you know, that th those are the voices that are sort of documented. He talks to all the, you know, the journalist talks to all these different people across the country who have taken part in these demonstrations and who are dealing with these different things. And I think a notable thing in, in you know, in there is that, you know, um, they're, they're workers, but organized labor has, has by and large, I'm sure there are exceptions, but by and large, not really given them the time of day. Um, so, so there's, there's, there's that to contend with as well, even though this is clearly like a highly mobilized, um, you know, increasingly organized, uh, you know, section of the economy that's that where workers are standing up for themselves. Mm -hmm. And Sophia, can you tie that in a little bit and maybe just remind us about this, this uh, talk that's coming up at CUTV uh, pretty soon? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is kind of a great sort of note to end on because it kind of ties in, you know, the ways in which CUTV and The Breach, you know, there's a kind of, I guess, like some overlap, like we're different organizations, but then there's, you know, overlap in terms of covering, you know, some similar topics and with the footage, the CTV footage being used um, in this article. I, I think it's like a nice sort of ending point. But um, yeah, I guess just going back to what I was saying earlier about upcoming events, um, just another reminder about the the talk that we have with Oded. Is that what you were referring to in regards yeah, to yeah. events? Yeah, yeah. So we'll be having uh, the talk with Odette again uh, this coming Wednesday, 4 p.m. EST on Zoom. I shared the Eventbrite link so you can very easily register uh, there. It is free and we'll be talking about decolonizing the news and the work that Indigenous is doing. Mm. Amazing. And so definitely people can check out cutvmontreal.org to get up to dates, updates on, on all of the new workshops and uh, everything at the station. And people should definitely check out breachmedia.ca to follow the important work they're doing and to become a supporter. Um, you know, it, it, it does take the support of people who are viewing this kind of stream to really keep uh, that sort of work alive. And of course, follow these guys, CUTV and The Breach on social media. Um, Drew Odejay and Sophia Hersbarsowski, I know you guys are excited about the Oppo reboot, and I have some important news that uh, is just coming in on, uh, I just got an email from the Harbinger Board of Directors. It's in negotiation right now if the Harbor Harbinger Board is going to greenlight this project or not. We are just waiting to see if enough support comes in on the stream, if we can really afford to buy the rights from 
Canada Land to reboot Oppo with Max Fawcett and Robin Erbach. Um, I am waiting on that, and I'm going to have more information to reveal. Fun, fun, fun fact, Andre: yeah. Justin Ling is was was an intern at the Media Co-op back in the you know early late late 2000s. So I remember when you mentioned that. Also, fun fact: Justin Ling occasionally drinks at my favorite bar, Les Verts de Lisée, on the plateau, and it always makes me kind of mad. It's like, what are you doing here? Get out of here! But also, that wouldn't be nice. I would never confront him about that. Uh, Sophia Hurst-Barsowski is the station manager at CTV. Drew Odege is the executive director of CTV uh, and the publisher at The Breach. You guys, I really appreciate it. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having us, Andre. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Andre. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hi, all. Um, my name is Shannon Caranco. I'm the co-founder of The Hoser, which is... Uh, if you know about us, we're an independent media network um, with a website uh, in Toronto, and we cover local news in the GTA. I'm, and I'm Amy Cunningham, and I contribute to The Hoser in various ways. I'm Leah Force kuhlman I do social media and uh, newsletter editing. So, yeah, we're just going to tell you a little bit about sort of the work we do with The Hoser. Um, we are connected uh, with the Harbinger Media Network because we have a podcast called Fort Circuit um, that I host along with um, other Hoser co-founder Kevin Egebon and our producers Eric Wickham actually has um, another podcast called Big Shiny Takes that he does with Marino, who is also helping out today. <laughs> um, yeah, we're a big community. Um but yeah, maybe we can start with some of the questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm wondering, Shannon, like, how do you think the hosers changed since a year ago even? Yeah. Um, so we we were we launched our website in April 2021, and um, we were pretty slow going with publishing maybe like four or five articles a month, sometimes more, sometimes less, like through that first year and then uh we ended up getting this grant this summer um believe it or not through meta <laughs> uh because they have destroyed journalism over the last 15 to 20 years and um are trying to put money back into it i guess probably as a tax write-off but we took their money and uh through the summer like over the last six months we've been reporting like at least twice a week sometimes three, sometimes four. Um, and it's just like really enabled us to do more journalism. Um, we've been able to expand our reporters. Um, we've worked with some really incredible people uh, over the last six months and obviously since starting the hoser. But um, yeah, what else? What else do you guys think? Yeah, like one of the cool things that I'm really excited about is we've been doing our newsletter for about five or six months now. And then recently um, we realized we have a ton of content that we want to share. So we've split it up into every other week you'll be getting, um, if you're signed up for a newsletter, um, a uh, long read essay written by Amy. And they're usually really hilarious. And sometimes I cry <laughs> while reading them, often about pumpkins. Um, so there's, been, there's been a lot of pumpkin themed stuff lately yeah. <laughs> and like how to um oh sorry we're getting a kind request to speak a little bit louder um yeah like 
So Amy grew these pumpkins uh, in Toronto. We had like a, Amy and I lived together um, and we had like a beautiful pumpkin garden in our front yard here in Parkdale. Maybe we can talk about the pumpkins a little. <laughs> the pumpkins are very important. They taught me a lot about the world and the people in it. And um, I feel like I'm doing like a report about my summer vacation. <laughs> um, but basically, as Leah was talking about the newsletter, um, there's like the like longer read newsletter, an essay that I write, and then uh, and as as well as just like a, a roundup of content from like directly from the site. Um, and what what I write isn't um, immediately available on, on the website, so it's like extra content. And it's kind of uh, I like to describe it as kind of a non-essential um, <laughs> information, and it's just kind of about like anything that is like uh themed around just like being in Toronto like physically like present in Toronto and just like um experiencing um the sense sensory experience of of being here and um I grew these pumpkins in my front yard there was a lot of what I did this summer uh and I so I had a lot of thoughts um so also, how uh, how's our how's our volume? <laughs> Can you hear us okay? Can we get a thumbs up? <laughs> uh, Y'all really... are coming in great. Excellent. Wow. Cool. Reno, do you like our lighting here? I love the theme. It's very. Uh, it's at. <laughs> Which one's better? Which one's spookier? I can't has more journalistic integrity <laughs> it's like choosing between two of my sons these beautiful bats oh. <laughs> anyways I, i'm back into the darkness with me Listen. oh yeah. yeah well the darkness <laughs> the darkness is the theme we all come from the darkness <laughs> um yeah let's let's go with our other questions yeah um amy what's the favorite story that either that you've worked on for the hoser or just like maybe a story that i've worked on for the hoser what's your favorite story <laughs> It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so we like worked on like because we also like edit stories or is that I like personally wrote both. Do you have a favorite? Um, uh, the ones that I like the best are never the ones that I get the most like messages about from you guys and like from other people. Um, the garden one from last year was fun. Um, I tried a garden last year in the backyard and there wasn't enough sun and everything died. And it was just a very, it's a very bleak, sad story um, that a lot of people will talk about to their children for generations to come. Uh, and then, uh, but the uh, one of the ones that I like had the highest aspirations for, but like maybe didn't achieve was I had, I wrote, uh, I wrote an essay about all the times that I couldn't get a box spring uh, all the way into a new apartment in Toronto. And um, it just, it has happened to me a lot of times here. And it just feels like a part of the experience of being in these like weird apartments that like were meant to be apartments with these creepy hallways. Um, spooky also. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, but the, that it reminds me 
uh, and that like, as I have been doing this for like over 10 years of living in Toronto, trying to get these box springs up into these like third floor attic spaces. And then one day my friend was like, why do you even have a box spring? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Cause like my dad bought me one once. And I thought this is like an essential thing that like, no matter where I went in this world, no matter what happened to me, I would have to have a box spring under my mattress. And then I just realized that box springs, um, you know, represent these kind of outdated value systems that we inherit from our parents. <laughs> That's so great. Good choice. Excellent choice. I also love that box spring essay. Shannon. Did you? Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite story? That's a really hard question for me to answer. Um, I guess like recently, um, uh, so Ian Wilms and Megan Dallaire, um, Ian's a photojournalist, uh, really incredible photojournalist, and Megan Dallaire, who happens to be his partner, is also just a fantastic journalist and writer, um, and they worked on this piece together for us about um, the, uh, like, Don River, uh, Portland's um naturalization project yeah Yeah. naturalization project I guess it's like the correct term to use there and basically Toronto is like spending like a billion dollars like revitalizing this whole area um and it was ruined by previous development too yeah like Mm -hmm. from the late 1800s until today um and it's sort of like a deep dive into like what that project is how that whole river system and how it comes into uh, Lake Ontario um, like was sort of destroyed over the years yeah and what they're doing to uh, like preserve it and the whole sort of crux of that article is that you know the city knew that this needed to be done forever and you know uh, they didn't do anything until this like multi multi million dollar condo project uh, like took an interest in developing that area and so now they sort of have to they have to fix it and so Ian went down there a few times and just took all of these like incredible photos and it's just like a really wonderful investigative piece uh, and it's like pretty great to have so much investigative content on our website now um, we've been able to like put our resources into that reporting work um, and we're just like continuing to like develop our investigative sections and just as well as our whole website. Yeah, I feel like investigations have been like a really big part of the Hoser's growth in the last year and like all the amazing investigative journalists that we've worked with. It's been really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite? I've been thinking about this and I've had time. <laughs> um, so I did like a Q&A style interview with um, a death doula um, who runs these groups called BIPOC Death Talks. And so it's she runs with her um, partner in the project um, these free monthly talks. And it was just like, for me, like really eye-opening to learn about what a death doula does and like that there are those in Toronto that specialize in BIPOC grief and like just hearing some of the compassion and like the incredible work that this person does. That was like one of my favorite interviews that I've done. What is is a death doula do? Yeah. So a death doula, essentially the way a birth doula 
helps um, the birthing person. A deaf doula uh, always is um, accompanying a person who is dying and helping them make sure that their last weeks, their last days are exactly as they want. So maybe it's like preparing the family for like what they could be experiencing and or setting up like a vigiling schedule and vigiling is like when like someone is sitting beside the dying person at all times so they never have to die alone and like like mm-hmm. death doula like even if there is like a supportive family it's just like your person making sure that like your death is as you want it to be yeah yeah, yeah. that's amazing mm-hmm. very cool yeah um we've got 15 more minutes here about maybe we should talk a little bit more about the podcast yeah let's do that um so yeah we've had I think about six episodes of short circuit now um and so the focus of it is uh on food insecurity um and labor in Toronto um and so we've had like a very like sort of wide and open array of stories that we've uh done um and yeah, our, I think we, like, really were encouraged to do it and, like, sort of committed to doing this podcast, um, a huge part because of Harbinger um, and just sort of, like, the community that uh, that this network is, especially Andre. <laughs> Andre Gillet is um, just, like, so supportive and really, like, helped us get it off the ground. And honestly, I'm not sure that we we could have done it without him um, and without Eric, of course, Eric with him, big shiny takes. Um, Yeah, it's just like, you know, like as journalists, you know, there, once you sort of like graduate university and you're not working in mainstream media, there's like, it feels like there's very few supports out there for us. Um, And just to have the Harbinger Andre like reach out to us like talk over like our concept talk over our name and our branding um you know like really just like offer like so much guidance and support was amazing um and I definitely encourage people to uh to provide some funding today for uh the Harbinger Media Network because like yeah it's just uh it's just such a wonderful thing and like really also like one of a kind in Canada like what are your hopes for the podcast in future episodes um we've got so much um I would say we'd love to do some more stories on labor um so uh like some of the stuff that we've done with labor we were able to like go to um like a QP demonstration that um, workers of University of Toronto uh like staged um like a demo of uh like they wrote this letter and delivered it to the president of U of T um because uh I believe it was um with their uh like healthcare benefits were being uh taken away as well as um like U of T was like hiring uh like part-time workers that didn't have to be part of the union um and it was just like a pretty uh, ridiculous situation anyway so we like have like audio recordings of like you know like following this group of people 
through the University of Toronto, going to the president's office. Um, it's just like a really like sort of wonderful, immersive, uh, like uh, like sound experience, <laughs> I guess you could say. Um, you know, like it's not every day that you get to like be that up close and personal with demos like that. Um, so I would really love to do more stuff like that. Just like taking our listeners into these situations that just sort of like make these issues more intimate um, and like relatable, you know, and educational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of up close and personal, is community events that we've been doing more and more of. Yeah. Um, and I think that's definitely something that helps us get to know our audience and also helps our audience get to know us and like bring a much more like personal touch on some of the stories when we do things like trivia nights or like story circle that kind of thing yeah yeah uh yeah I think like one of the first uh like sort of in-person events we've had like especially through the pandemic it's been like hard to organize things because uh, you know, especially in the winter, it's like harder to do things outside in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we've had a few, uh, one of the first ones, like, so part of like the hosers, like MO, um, is just like creating community, um, like within sort of the journalism scene in the GTA as well. So like, uh, we had like a gathering of like mostly young, uh, journalists, um, uh, at a bar, uh, you know, where we were able to just like kind of talk shit about mainstream media and, um, you know, like working conditions and pay. And, um, you know, it wasn't really like a networking thing. It was more of like, let's commiserate together and, and like also, you know, like talk about why we do the work that we do. Um, and we'd like to have more events like that in the future too. Cause I, again, like, you know, it's, especially if you're freelancing, like, there's so little support out there, and I think, like, we need to stick together, and especially, like, fight for better, um, you know, like, freelancing pay and standards, and that kind of thing. What other events have we had? Trivia. Trivia. Um, We trivia. We had trivia. We said weed trivia. <laughs> oh, weed trivia. Yeah. Weed labor trivia. Yes, that was really cool. And I learned a lot about weed labor and like just a lot of like some egregious facts and like very interesting ones. And this is, we, okay, so we had this uh, like collaborative project that we did with the Green Line in Toronto. They're another like incredible indie media outlet that everyone should check out. Um, and Rabble as well. And so the three of us collaborated uh, with uh, Megan Kinch, who is just like a fantastic labor reporter uh, in the GTA. And um, Megan wrote about like the labor that goes into the marijuana industry in Ontario. And they did like such a fantastic job on it. And it was like, I want to say like a eight month project um, and just like required like, you know, so much investigative reporting, so much research. Um, And then when the article was published, we had this really cool event uh, at a bar in Parkdale here um, where, you know, we were able to like ask meeting questions and, you know, sort of invite members of like the marijuana labor community in the GTA and 
who gave feedback and yeah it was really fun yeah was there a question about uh what what do you do when all of your friends are harvesting their own weed plants and no one will hang out with you for like three solid weeks <laughs> was there was what's the answer i need to know the answer to that question and then you can't go to their house because it smells skunky which is very relevant now because there was a dog that got sprayed by a skunk last night it was it's very skunky in here. It's been the whole morning is de-skunking this dog. I don't know if you've ever tried to de-skunk a husky samoyed, but let me tell you, a fluffy boy who doesn't like water, it, I feel I feel different. I feel like I'm a different person now. Uh, it was like very funny and also a little bit dramatic. There's like a good chance Amy's gonna write an essay about it for the next newsletter. Yeah, yeah I just, <laughs> teaser. Yeah, or yeah. I mean, I just I do need to. I, it's all, it's in the queue with like with Matthias gets sprayed by a skunk. Matthias accidentally kills a ferret. Matthias, <laughs> he's uh you know just like a, a well of content. This fluffy boy. This made me think of one of my favorite, um, like, I guess it was like kind of a listicle, but more like just a list that you put in the essay, which was all the things you found in Toronto bike lanes that aren't bikes or people. Oh, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because we did, we did. Uh... See, the thing is, I write these essays in a fugue state. And so it's hard for me to remember anything. Uh, and I'm, But yeah, that, that I even did it. But yeah, we did the one about bikes. Uh, biking in Toronto, which is obviously um, a big like issue kind of politically, like in a municipal way, but also it's a big part of like Toronto identity, like people who are cyclists here because it's so hard. We like identify strongly with our cycling. Uh, and uh, anyway, and, and then we, we also wrote yeah, a long list of all the things that are in the bike lanes that aren't the bikes. And um and they're numerous. Um and and that went on social media. Have you heard of social media? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was like one of our better performing posts this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Also like um the Bond Place Shelter Hotel like really just like blew things out of the water. Like we had so much like interaction and engagement on that post. Um yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, okay. and our and our and our TikTok, TikTok. Yeah, mm. we have a TikTok now. Uh, it took us like a really long time to get on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> in, in TikTok <laughs> years, in TikTok years. But um, I think it's because like their social media media manager is scared of TikTok. Me, I am scared of TikTok. <laughs> but um, a really incredible reporter named Maria Saru um, does like these great TikTok videos that like really do a great job of like summarizing some of like the key points that I think and like in serious articles but also like fun just like um Toronto lifestyle kind of Toronto living style videos as well so it's really fun yeah yeah oh it's been good I Mm -hmm. think like one of our videos has like 50,000 views which seems like a lot in the TikTok universe I don't know yeah like we all explained about it (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) you hear that (laughs) I don't know. Do we have uh, about five more minutes or so? Yeah. Are there any questions that people have for us? This type is very small. And no. Okay. 
Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about, I feel like we talked about like the um, long read newsy a lot. So that comes on like alternating weeks with like thematic fun events to help you plan a fun weekend. And then also on alternating weeks, we do, we've just started doing this like critical news roundup of like all the most important stories that like we feel we've covered in the last couple of weeks. And also a way to kind of like get to know your reporters. So like, that's something I'm excited about is like, the reporters who are telling these important stories and doing these investigations like really are like our neighbors and so and like our great people who have like a lot to say and so we um have been just making a point to like feature our reporters and give people a chance to like really get to know them they're not some abstract individuals working in an office like they really care about the community issues and so that's been cool they're not algorithms mm -hmm. <laughs> they're real um, skin-based people. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Did you... What else were you going to talk about? Well, about it? I mean, the next segment, we, we can talk about what's coming up because... Oh, my God. Good thinking. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, we collaborated on this really wild thing uh called the grind it's a freaking newspaper can you believe it these things still exist IRL. uh this is actually the article that i was uh, referencing before um by uh megan delaire and ian Wilms. you guys can see there's some really great pictures there but um yeah uh we collaborated um with uh several other indie media people in uh, Toronto that uh, our friend David Gray Donald is about to t tell you all about. Um, but yeah, basically we just put out a newspaper and we're like in the midst of fundraising for it as well. Uh, you can follow it at, I believe it's the grind at the grind to you. Um, and uh, yeah, there's uh, there's lots of potential for new journalism there. And I guess the idea is that like we are republishing like independent uh, media articles, um, including like Press Progress and like other um, other like uh, Harbinger Media Network uh, members uh, content uh, every couple of months. Uh, there's a few Hoser articles in there and um, yeah, it's exciting stuff. Someone in the chat named Three Colors Trilogy says, hi, Hoser folks. Hi, Three Colors Trilogy. Thanks for the love. Um, <laughs> also, we're wearing Hoser t-shirts. We have Hoser t-shirts. There's raccoons on the back, but we're squished, so it's hard to... Okay, yeah. Okay. Camber all this. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> right? Okay, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. And, uh, thanks, Marino. Thanks, Andre. I think... Dave and Andre are coming in. Are they coming Everybody in? picture them. Dave, <gasps> hey, oh my God, God, I'm so powerful. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Oh, hey, hi guys. It was so spooky watching you guys talk about the Hoser's latest work. Did you guys plan on making it that scary? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we put a lot of effort into decorating before. <laughs> before. It's, 
It's yeah, it's it's terrifying. But what's not terrifying has been the success of the hoser since it launched about a year ago. And so it's been wonderful to see you guys grow and succeed. Um, and I'm really happy that you could be part of the stream today. So are we ready to pivot to talking about the grind? Pivot right up. So maybe before we transition to Dave, um, Shannon, can you give us a little bit of background on the hoser's uh, uh, participation in launching the grind? Um, yeah, it's a little, it's a bit of a long story. There was a lot of stuff before we decided to uh, like create our own uh, publication, the grind. Um, but yeah, basically uh, Kevin and I um, have been working very closely uh, with Dave, um, especially like through the last, I don't know, six months or so. Uh, yeah. In like, wanting to, um, I don't want to say revive print media, but uh, yeah, like create something that is like accessible uh, to like people across the GTA, um, specifically within the subway system. Uh, and so like we are editors, Kevin and I are editors for The Grind. Um, and there's like several uh, like hoser articles within this issue. And so the idea is that you know, uh, depending on like what the hosers content is every month, um, you know, we will like cherry pick articles, uh, like from our outlet that we think, uh, would like fit the grinds MO and, um, yeah, sort of like get it out to a wider audience than, you know, or maybe an audience that like isn't automatically sort of like drawn to the hoser in general you know it's like people going to work on the TTC picking up this paper and seeing all of this like into independent media content that they've never heard of before. I saw someone reading it at Larry's Folly today and I almost screamed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah and so when I heard the rumors about this new project launching it had kind of been in the works for a long time. And I was like, are they serious? Because it seemed kind of too good to be true. Um, I grew up in an era when alt weeklies were common and you could pick them up all the time. And they were kind of one of the major spaces for um, knowing what's going on and, and having perspectives that are outside of the mainstream. So I was like really, really excited to see it uh, actually come to fruition. Um, so Dave Gray Donald, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of how the grind came to be and maybe your own relationship with alt weeklies and, and why this seems like a good idea and why right now? Wow, cool. Um, yeah, and thanks Andre so much for for hosting this. Uh love Harbinger, love what you do. Thanks so much for inviting us on. Um, so please support Harbinger Media Network. <laughs> the link is in the chat. Um, yeah, so I I worked as the publisher at Briar Patch for about three years in Regina, Saskatchewan, Treaty 4 territory. Uh, and Briar Patch folks are coming on later today. Really looking forward to that. Um, and we were sending out the publication to... Uh, between 1,000 and 2,000 print subscribers and getting out to like lots of people online. Uh, actually, Toronto is the single city with the largest online readership of Briarpatch. Uh, 
It's a national publication. Mm. Um, but I've always been like, we, we want to scale up uh, the reach that we have as indie media makers. We're making good stuff. We want to get it out to more people. How do we do that? Um, and yeah, and to your, to your other question, Alt Weeklies, um, I grew up in Toronto. I, I remember picking up Now Magazine, the uh, other, or the, you know, this was Now uh, from a few years ago, great indie uh, Alt Weekly, picking it up at the back of like the Queen uh, Street streetcar. These like dingy old streetcars uh, in the back area of the streetcar was like fit like seven seats and people would always be back there like chit-chatting the republications flying around and like beer bottles like falling over um so yeah i have like memories of picking up now and seeing like a really vibrant city a very different city than i was seeing in like the globe and mail hmm. uh, or the toronto star and so uh what has happened if, if you haven't been following with now and also the georgia strait that's a different story in, in vancouver but uh now and, and the strait were both bought up um from their founders they're both founded in like the 70s and 80s they were bought up by these kind of tech investor guys and uh it about two years ago now was bought for two million dollars the georgia strait was bought for like a million point two five or something and the company went bankrupt in February. So that started like, I was like, oh shit, like, okay, like what's gonna happen? So we're trying to follow closely, what the hell is gonna happen with this thing? I should put a, a little aside, the Toronto Star was sold two years ago, early in the pandemic. And it was sold eventually for about $60 million. When it was up for sale, I was like, can we find anyone <laughs> who wants to buy the biggest single uh, circulation newspaper in Canada for $60 million and make it like an unabashedly left publication? And the answer was no. No one wanted to do that. <laughs> um, there were a couple of people who were like, yeah, I have like, you know, some hundreds of thousands of dollars or something. Kind of liberals I was talking to. Um, so I don't know if that would have worked. But it, it sort of like, that kind of thing is like really exciting to me and like trying to get the infrastructure to get out um, the media that, that we have. And I think I've sent a photo, uh, Marino, to, to you of uh, someone who is not exactly an inspiration, but he's a, he's a very scary figure. And I don't know if we can bring up this image. Back uh, this <clears throat> very, very scary figure. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, mm. you could you could call him Conrad, or um, you could also think of like how do we how do we make like a, a comrade a comrade Com version comrade black <laughs> comrade black. Uh, I think we should all think of ourselves as comrade black. <laughs> we are all comrade black. I like this. Um, I, I I so I love this. Just to interject for a second, um, the. Yeah, the heritage for people who are a little bit older for Alt Weekly <laughs> is really interesting because me too, like growing up in Edmonton, uh, I would have picked up um, C and U were like the competing Alt Weeklies. Okay. Late, later when I moved to Montreal, it was uh, EC. Um, and in English, it was the mirror, it was mirror and the hour. 
And then they all just sort of like unraveled um, within the last yeah. decade. So suddenly there was this complete disappearance of alternative media, right? Where we not only can find out about shows and stuff, but where I think there's a sense of community and, and stuff like that. So conceptually, the grind was like immediately exciting. When uh, I heard it was happening, I was like, what? When I heard it was almost ready to be released, I was like, are you kidding me? Um, and that you guys were like releasing it in the, in the subway stations and stuff. And then the design was just like so good. The content was so good. The collaboration between what the hoser is doing and what other orgs in Toronto are doing. I think the green line participates as well. Uh, and Briar Patch contributes um, pieces as well. So having that space and then repurposing the online reporting and journalism and having that be in a, a physical paper, so exciting and so cool. And like you were saying, the last two standing were now in Toronto and the Georgia Straits in Vancouver. And they both kind of got like iffy near the end. And then they just like stopped or mostly stopped. Uh, So there's this vacuum. um, And it makes a ton of sense that the people who are really passionate about media and who are independent and who are progressive and who are left, uh, left of center ideologically left it makes so much sense that these kinds of people would step in so I was thrilled that it was you guys and I honestly couldn't believe it I still can't believe it um so how was before you get back into Comrade Black um how was the reception for that inaugural launch issue which came out like I think several days before the municipal elections yeah yeah thanks for the the question and context Andre and I'll just say Yeah, to sort of complete the story and bring us up to it is that now magazine hadn't been paying or supposedly hadn't been paying their um, staff for months and they they haven't printed an issue since August. Mm -hmm. And the staff, when they printed the issue in August, the staff said, this is it. This is the last issue. And so that was the moment when we were like, okay, this has all been hypothetical. Now we have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Are we going to try and do a replacement kind of publication or not? Mm-hmm. And if so, how the hell do we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Kevin and Shannon at the Hoser have been fantastic. Uh, like They're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's try and fill this void. Uh, let's put something out. And we've got you know friends who are a lot, many of whom are on this call or like on this telethon. So uh, there's a republished article from Press Progress by Emily Leadham, great article about Polyev. There's a Canadian Dimension article. There's a couple of Briar Patch articles, one from a like a music writers collective, New Feeling, uh, and then several uh, new original articles. And yeah, we just we went for it. It was a lot of work. Um, we put in our own money and some loans and we got like a, a small number of advertisers, not enough to cover costs. Um, we're hoping for more advertisers next issue now that it actually exists. But could you but remind that, but me that what proof, the question was? Well, but that, proof, <laughs> but that proof of concept is really, really important, um, which for me too, even though I'm a, I'm a super fan of the work that everyone does, um, seeing it pulled off so like... It was almost gratuitous how well you guys did it. Um, I think actually a lot of people were probably offended at how good it was. They're like, this doesn't, this shouldn't exist. It's too much. 
Um, but my question was like the reception, reception yeah, the yeah. feedback. Um, what was that like? Because I don't know, like people are just picking up this paper uh, or they're following it on Twitter. They're reading it online. But what have you heard? It's only been like nine days, but like. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I think there were a number of people uh, in the sort of like journalism world in Toronto who were hyped about it. Um, People who like both the indie folks and also the people who uh, were big fans of now and are like maybe working at the Toronto Star and don't really like it or working at the Globe and are kind of like, oh, I wish I could publish what I actually believe. Uh, and they were like, yes, like Toronto needs an alt-weekly. So that was kind of the Twitterati response. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we're trying to do with the publication is we printed 50,000 copies and they're going directly into the TTC, the, the transit system, the subway system. And it's people who are not like uh, obnoxiously uh, or always on Twitter, uh, who are picking the thing up because they're sitting in the subway and they're like, well, what am I going to do? So it has very high pickup rate in the subway. Uh, It's been like flying off the shelves because now isn't there anymore. So people are picking it up. It's at some cafes. It's at some bookshops. uh, And we have just started getting donations from random people. Not enough, but people who are just like, yes, I like what you're doing. Uh, Looking forward to the next issue. We had a few people who were like, oh, not enough arts and culture, uh, which is like, you know, fair enough. Now was the event like listing uh, Bible for Toronto. Mm-hmm. And we're not, we haven't recreated that. That would be amazing to be able to get to that point. Um, but in terms of like saying something about the election for free, distributed in print in the subway system, bookstores, cafes, people were like, yes, thank you. So uh, this this kind of <clears throat> I mean this kind of like DIY thing it's so punk rock and it's so cool because there's lots of that in in independent publishing there's obviously lots of that in independent music um uh but we with media like I don't know this is this is so much next level than a zine or something and one of the reasons is because of the high quality of the work that the hoser brings to it the briar patch brings to it so Shannon, maybe you could comment on how this reinforces a progressive media ecosystem because mutual aid is not something we usually think about when we think of like being media, uh, being spaces and media, independent media. How has that reinforcement um, been something uh, exciting to be part of? Yeah, no, it's been like, I mean, it's been a pretty incredible uh like journey to you know a lot of the the people that we've ended up working with through this project I had never worked with before or you know maybe like admired on Twitter or admired you know their work um but yeah to be able to sort of like band together um you know and different people put in you know more or less work or whatever but just to be sort of like connected to all of these like incredible outlets that I have had um, respect for forever, you know, like Briar Patch, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I fucking loved it while in university and was just like such an inspiration for me to do the journalism that I really wanted to do. Um, yeah. So to be able to like collaborate on something like that has been so incredible. Um, and like, I guess what I was saying earlier 
like with the Harbinger network, you know, it's like, it's so important to like have these support systems for independent media because there's so little out there and it's such a hard uh, racket and a hard thing to like make profitable and keep going. And it Mm -hmm. takes so much energy and time. And, you know, we all have like part-time jobs and we're still trying to run, you know, like a media company. Um, Anyway. Yeah. So like, I, Mm -hmm. Like having that support system, building this community, like really sort of like being uh, in this like left indie media space together and not like completely separated has been awesome. And also, yeah, just like getting these stories out to like such a huge population, um, you know, and like having people uh, read about uh, like, you know, police violence at encampments or like fucking horrible uh conditions for people who are living in the shelter hotels in toronto um you know sort of like getting this like truth out to like such a massive audience is Mm -hmm. awesome yeah and and also yeah the scope of it like the uh when i saw online that you were printing fifty thousand copies i was like no they're not that's not a possible number that seems too much um, but in fact, it's true. It's accurate. And so I, what I love about it is this idea of thinking big, right? And thinking big is more difficult to do when you're kind of solo. But when you're collaborating with other people, not only are you like hyping each other up, but your capacity is much larger, obviously. So David, tell us a little bit about that sort of thinking big about recreating uh, media infrastructure in Canada. Um, yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is the sort of tangent I was going on with, uh, comrade black. Yep. Uh, so he, you know, he started the post media, uh, or he, yeah, sort of the mastermind of making post media, a mm-hmm. conservative newspaper empire. And they own and, you know, publish in the biggest newspaper in almost every city in Canada. And it's part of a, a much larger network of mutually reinforcing uh, idea distribution, idea creation and distribution networks. So, you, you know, uh, it starts from anything from like the Manning Center, which is now called the Strong and Free Network. They put out a report or turn that into a book. And then that goes out to the newspapers and they sort of dutifully republish those ideas uh, through their spokespeople their columnists, and then it goes on to talk radio, which is also sort of conservative controlled and just gets out there. It becomes the noise that we are swimming in. Mm-hmm. And the left hasn't had that kind of networked infrastructure of idea development, distribution, uh, discussion. Uh, not in my lifetime, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um maybe once upon a time. Um, And so I've worked in book publishing. I've worked in magazine publishing. I've been an editor with the media co-op. I've learned a lot working with people like Drew. Um, And yeah, just trying to see like how to, how to do the kind of uh, mutual reinforcement and and getting that message out. And I think Harbinger is a great example of like people in discussion with each other across shows, people in discussion with each other between sort of print and, and podcast, uh, also community radio, community TV, 
And so I think that's like uh, more conversations like this, like, like we're having right now, like this telethon is doing, bringing people together and being like, how do we get the infrastructure to get out wider? How do we get, and it's, it's not just a matter of like, yeah, as you were saying, not just doing it yourself, but um, using what's existing and like the CUTV breach uh, collaboration is a great example of, you know, taking the sort of existing infrastructure and, and using it and um, using it for like some great journalism. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just, I see, I see potential for a lot more of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it's really exciting. And so having the grind launch uh, nine or 10 days ago was super exciting. It, it really is just sort of like the first step and the first issue. Yeah, it really makes us rethink what's possible with print media, which is in many ways a dying space, but it's so exciting to see something new come come out of that. So before we wrap up, maybe a few final words from Dave and a few final words from the Hoser team. Dave? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing this off the side of our desks, basically. Uh, we just really wanted to get an issue out, prove that it's possible, uh, break even, and we're pretty close, actually. We've, we've uh, had some, some good donations. We had a couple advertisers. And I think if we can actually get some money coming in, I mean, the public records show that like a, a publication like now or the Georgia Strait had between like a million and two million annual revenue. Um, so if we were able to come anywhere close to that kind of annual revenue for a publication, getting that kind of advertising, uh, that's huge. You know, like having a few staff people any of our, the publications on this telethon, you know, we kind of dream of having like a few staff people full time, like being able to do that would be incredible. So we're, we're, yeah, we're doing the, the bi-monthly every other month publishing. Uh, if, if we can, maybe someday we'll have staff, maybe we'll actually have a website that works. Um, we're not there yet. So we're just building, we're going for it. And uh, maybe we can, uh, people should definitely give to Harbinger. Maybe we can also drop the link. Um, I'll do that to the uh, Grind fundraiser. Definitely. Uh, Shannon, for, for you guys and for the Hoser team, uh, any last words to share with, with viewers? Yeah, I think we just like, we need more independent media in Canada. Um, and like with the Grind, with the Hoser, we were just like a few people with this idea um and you know we got together and we put a shit ton of work into it and we made it happen uh and you know whether we're around for 20 years or not leah bort cooperman amy cunningham and shannon karanko are in toronto dave gray donald is also in toronto you can find out more about the hoser at uh thehoser.ca and follow the grind on twitter at the grind co if you want to support the hoser go to hosermedia.ca and look for the grind uh, at your local subway station if you're in toronto uh before we pivot to our next uh segment which is from darts and letters and i'm excited about that uh i just want to read uh, another another uh piece from between the lines um because they're not only publishers they also have so many of their new and old releases available 
as audiobooks. So if you are into audiobooks about social justice and labor history, Between the Lines has a growing collection of audiobooks without bosses, nonfiction books published cooperatively by uh, their leftist book press. Their selection includes Leslie Kern's Feminist City. She's the author of uh, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Uh, It's an international bestseller for anyone wanting to use their city strolls to think differently about their city as an ongoing site of gender justice. You can also check out Code White by Margaret Keith and James Brophy, which is an engaging listen that probes into the working conditions of healthcare workers in Ontario. There's What's Yours is Mine, which delves into the seedy underbelly of the sharing economy. And Unsettling Canada by Arthur Manuel and Grand Chief Ronald M. Derrickson, which is a landmark text on a uni- built on a unique collaboration between two First Nation leaders that traces the history of Indigenous sovereignty in Canada. All of the Between the Lines audiobooks are available from your audiobook app of choice or for borrowing from your local public library. Uh, look for it wherever you get your audiobooks. Uh, stay tuned for Darts and Letters coming up at the top of the hour and uh, smash that follow button. Uh, more on the, uh, more on the uh, relaunch of Oppo coming up soon as well. <laughs> 